Do you love the smell of a turp? The feel of a kidney at open nephrectomy? The sound of a Q-max over 30 mils per second? The sight of a renal stone disintegrating at the tip of your laser fibre? Or the taste of a beer at the end of a difficult cystectomy and neobladder? Then delight your five senses with So You're Gonna. So You're Gonna, the practical urology podcast for those who love urology. Hello, I'm Joseph Iskia, and welcome to another episode of So You're Gonna, our new podcast series from the team at Talking Urology, where we get excited about helping doctors and allied practitioners develop a deeper understanding of the literature so that we apply the right evidence to the right patient. We really enjoy doing the landmark papers, but we know that you also want to hear some hardcore facts, tips and tricks about conditions you see every day in your practice. Today, we have a fantastic podcast on how to deal with the impact that androgen deprivation therapy is having on the sex life of your patients. Now, if you're like me, you just had this sinking feeling of, I'm so busy and that is a can of worms I do not want to open in a 10-minute consult. But this is something that is really bothering a lot of our patients, and we do them a disservice by not acknowledging it, and they may often feel too embarrassed to bring it up. So to help me uncover my deficiencies today, and hopefully only the communication ones, I have the pleasure of being joined by my co-host, Victoria Cullen, a sexologist from Melbourne who co-founded the world's first and only sex toy design course at RMIT University. Her current PhD research focuses on designing sexuality solutions for prostate cancer patients. She runs a website at www.atouchysubject.com, which offers free education and medical-grade products for sexual recovery after prostate cancer treatment. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you, Joseph. It is an absolute pleasure to be here chatting about this important topic with you. Can I just come back for a moment to the RMIT course on sex toy design? Because back in first year medical school, if I'd had a choice between an introduction to disease or an introduction to dildos, I may have had a much more enjoyable year. What kind of students do you get in your course? That is a great question, Joseph. It was a wonderful course. It was offered to third year industrial design students for their thesis. So they had the choice of applying their design skills to a different context. So some did agriculture, others were doing zoology. And then there were those who thought, I'll do dildos. That will give me, I think, something to talk about with my friends about my thesis that I wouldn't have otherwise. And it was marvellous. We learnt a lot together. Well, very interesting. Getting back to men and their problems on ADT and helping us bring the literature to life today is Professor Richard Wasasag from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, who is world expert and has published extensively on sexuality for men and their partners on ADT. Let's start with the fact that one in seven Australian men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer in their lifetime. There are many different treatment pathways, but today we are focusing on androgen deprivation therapy and specifically on the sexual health and well-being side effects. Considering ADT is often called chemical castration, it is important we address this topic. Even if you've had no training in sexual health, by the end of this conversation you will feel comfortable talking to anyone about their sex life and probably even your patients. The way I see it, you will be the most accidentally in-demand conversational partner at all future social events. 
Does that accurately describe your life as a sexologist, Victoria? Well, pretty much yes, Joseph. Now, once your friends know that you can have a comfortable conversation about sexuality issues, you pretty much get an instant get out of jail free card to skip all the small talk at social functions. And it is my favorite occupational hazard. So I once even got a free Uber ride after I listened to a driver who looked for advice on how to have sex after a circumcision. And he was feeling particularly sensitive. So I gave him a sample of my go-to hypoallergenic lubricant for sex sensitivities, which is called Uberlube, and that has no association to that taxi company, but it was a fun coincidence in this instance. On a genuine note though, I feel the topic of talking about sexual side effects with patients is so important, and this isn't just for the patient's quality of life, because I genuinely believe healthcare providers are missing out on experiencing the gratitude that someone feels when such a sensitive topic like sexual function, one that is often loaded with shame and with worry, is treated comfortably in a clinical setting. It can really be quite transformative simply by confidently asking someone about their sexual health. There you go. We've already learnt how to ensure a five-star Uber rating. Now, I've also read that this topic is important, but particularly for patients on ADT. It appears that education around the sexual and psychological effects are still the most unmet educational needs that patients report. That latest research coming from a Melbourne patient sample by Helen Crow and colleagues in 2018. But this is particularly tricky because other studies suggest this population of patients are not likely to bring the matter up themselves. This is an amazing stat. Gilbert and his team in 2016 found that 70% of male cancer survivors based in Sydney stated they wanted their provider to initiate a chat about sexual health, and only 6% of patients initiated the chat themselves if it was not initiated by their provider first. I cannot think of any other issue in urology that would have such a large gap between what our patients want and what they are prepared to mention. So Victoria, what education do patients need when it comes to sexual side effects of ADT? They need to know that everyone is different. So it is difficult to tell what side effects they will experience ahead of time, but we can say what they can expect to happen or might happen so that they are then prepared. So erectile dysfunction is very common. In one study by Fode and Songsen in 2014, only 19% of patients were able to maintain an erection during sexual activity while they were on ADT. And for most of those patients, rigidity was still an issue. So patients also need education around what erectile dysfunction looks like in this scenario. Because some people hear the word dysfunction and they think, oh, so it's here one minute and it's gone the next. It's just like my dysfunctional teenager. Whereas in this instance, ED is likely to actually happen over time on ADT. And it may eventually not be possible to achieve an erection with any rigidity at all, even when aroused, which can be very disconcerting to men who thought that it might just be an inconsistent thing. Other sexual function changes also occur over time on ADT, such as a reduction in ejaculation, genital shrinkage, and lowered libido. And in fact, lowered libido is reported as one of the most distressing side effects on ADT for many patients. Wow, that is quite a list. And likening the distress to a dysfunctional teenager has really brought home the pain for a lot of doctors. But I digress. I've also read that sexual well-being becomes impacted by other side effects from the lack of testosterone, such as hot flashes and weight gain, which can in turn also affect sexual identity. Hearing all that, it's got to make our listeners wonder whether men and couples do in fact keep going with sexual activity when on ADT, especially when there's a lack of motivation for sex altogether. Victoria, how do couples keep their sex life going? All puns intended here, but it must be tempting to put sex in the 
too hard slash not hard enough basket? It's a great question. And puns should always be intentional in this space. Again, I think this can be a barrier to clinicians bringing up that sex question in appointments down the line if the assumption is that the lack of sex drive means a lack of sexuality. And luckily, we have some research on just this question. So Lauren Walker and John Robinson in 2010 over in Canada looked at whether couples were trying to remain sexually active after ADT. And then they did later research in 2012 on how those who try to maintain their sex life succeeded. So they found that many couples in ADT were trying to remain sexual, but those who succeeded tended to use the strategy of attitude reframing. So consciously choosing a new way to approach sexuality. Couples accepting the changes and adopting the newness in order to achieve feelings of closeness, sexuality, intimacy, even if it looked completely different to before, tended to do better than those who didn't. And rigidity is often what men with erectile dysfunction are asking for. However, ironically, the research suggests that rigidity in terms of ideas about how sex is supposed to be leads to suffering and further challenges. And I know that Richard talks about intimacy strategies in his workshop, so I'd be really interested to hear some practical ideas he shares with participants there. When we talk about sexuality and sexual recovery, we make it clear that we're not simply giving some sort of rah-rah sex positivism, everybody should be sexual, even if they're an ADT, which is a hell of a burden to push on a couple. But at the same time, we want to let them know their options. So we do discuss options here, and we know, for instance, that... uh, PDE5 drugs are not particularly effective if you have no libido. We acknowledge that. The erectile vacuum erection device uh, is a possibility. I mean, it will still work for a patient on ADT, but it may seem very unnatural if they have no, no real libido. What we do encourage is communication and physical contact. This is not sexual per se, but what sadly happens so often with couples on ADT is he's lost his libido and he used to have some sort of motion, some nonverbal social sexual psychosexual script, which involves sort of maybe um, touching his wife on the shoulder, a kiss on the neck, something when he came home. And he's now lost his libido and he forgets to do it. She's now abandoned. And that's appalling. Fascinating. So in a clinical setting, Richard, when a clinician might only have a few minutes to discuss sexual recovery with a patient, how do you recommend they go about it to get this message across? So in my scenario, the way it would go is that the patient comes to the doctor concerned about erectile dysfunction, asked about taking whatever, say, a PDE5. The doctor says, well, I'll tell you what, are you willing to come back with your partner? And the patient says, yes. The partner and patient come back to see the doctor several weeks later. And the doctor turns to the partner and says, my patient here is interested in, in uh, trying Viagra. How, how do you feel about that? And uh, if the partner says, well, I'm okay with that, the doctor then says, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to write out a script. He writes out a script. And he hands her the script and says, now, if he's really nice to you, you can give him one of these little blue pills. So that little story, we're saying that we really do have to engage the couple. There can also be other sex aids, uh, vibrators and so forth that can be shared in a certain way that really raises the erotic interest for both of them. But considering the depression of his libido, the partner has to be brought in. She is the best erotic uh, aid that could be part of his recovery. And if she's not part of it, full recovery of sexual interest and sexual function from virtually any urological treatment that impedes sexual function is going to be very difficult. Yes, I've seen that too with my clients. And continued affection and closeness is crucial to help keep sexuality alive during ADT treatment. 
In fact, studies that have looked at whether exercise can help libido found that it's actually the social impact of men exercising with their partners that have the biggest self-reported impact as it encouraged this connection. And they even found actually for single men, exercising with other men gave them opportunities for conversations about their side effects, which in turn helped raise well-being. And I think the message is to give couples agency over their sex life and sexual changes. So give them the options on how they could do this and normalize the idea that sexuality is adaptable if they want to maintain a sexual relationship. And it can still be fulfilling even if it does look different post-treatment. One of the stories I know from a sex therapist here in Canada who uh, was looking at the sexual practice of elderly couples. And she asked, well, you know, what is sex life? And one of them wrote her, and she loves this story. They said, well, when we're planning on sex for the weekend, it begins with what we planned for dinner. We plan that on Thursday night. So they turned the whole weekend into a sexual uh, event uh, in their minds. And whether it has a coital sex or not, I don't know, but it does imply that that they are, are taking their lives and, and essentially eroticizing them. And that I think is essential, but I can't prove it because we really don't have real solid data. It's all anecdotal at this point. Great examples of how sexuality can be maintained on ADT. So we know what sexual side effects need addressing and including the partner and relationship is crucial. However, not many doctors feel they have the expertise or equally prohibitively the time to deal with this. We know from studies such as Amanda Horden's work on clinical sexual communication that a barrier clinicians face is feeling underqualified in having these conversations. Now, this clinical sexual communication, that's not sexting, is it? Uh, No, it is not. Well, it was good to clear that up. It wasn't ambiguous to start with, Joseph. For you, maybe. All right, let's get back to talking about patients. What do we do if a couple isn't getting along, or one wants to try a sexual aid but the other doesn't? I certainly know there wasn't a sex counselling module in my training. Where's the line where a referral is appropriate, or should every clinician be fielding this? Well, in terms of providing sexuality advice, I think it's so important for everyone to know that you don't need to be a sex therapist to have a helpful conversation with someone about sex. So one framework to demonstrate this is the PLICIT model, developed by Jack Annan in 1976. Now this stands for permission, limited information, specific suggestions, and intensive therapy. It might even be helpful to write it on a post-it note to have it in your office as a short reminder, because research has shown that most sexual communication with patients only requires that first P, permission. So simply providing someone with the space to talk openly about their side effects, or knowing they can do that is often all you need to do to help. The next steps are providing some specific suggestions as suggested above. Then if it gets to limited information, meaning a longer consultation providing underlying education about how arousal works, for example, then you might want to refer that on. It can indeed become trickier, however, when the partnership are not on the same page. Richard, what are your thoughts on when it is best to refer to a counselor in this instance? I'll tell you another story along these lines, because this is in some of our own research. We looked at how miserable patients were from hormonal therapy, from androgen deprivation therapy, and how their partners assessed how miserable they were. And it turns out that in the couples where the patient said, I hate these drugs, I, I, don't, I, I feel terribly miserable, and independently on a, you know, through an online survey, we didn't have them in the room at the same time, we asked the partner, how is he doing? And she said, he's miserable. And then we asked each one of them, how are you doing as a couple? We look at the, what's called dyadic adjustment. It turns out they're doing fine because they're on the same page. We're miserable, <laughs> but at least they agreed. So they haven't come apart. 
So they don't have to necessarily be happy. They don't necessarily have to have, you know, coital penile vaginal sex, uh, but it helps that they're on the same page. And that can only be assessed by asking each one of them what their needs are. And the urologist can do that. But then, of course, often referral is necessary. And I don't think they should automatically make a referral, but I think they should automatically ask those questions to see whether a referral is necessary. So it sounds like often just beginning the sexuality conversation is enough. And then turn explicitly, asking both the patient and then turn to the partner separately and ask them how they are doing. And listening for congruence is a good strategy to assess if a referral is necessary. How about men who have male partners, Richard? In your experience, do they have different needs we need to keep in mind? So far, I've talked about heterosexual couples, uh, both here in Canada and Australia and much of the Western world now. Uh, Same-sex couples are part of the common uh, world we live in. Uh, Once you have same-sex marriage, uh, it's normalized completely. And when I've talked about partners who are the wives, it's only because the data we have is primarily from uh, heterosexual couples. What I've seen in our book, we have a whole section for, for gay couples, and we also have a section for single couples. And really what I've seen, this is sort of more of a personal observation, is that one of the biggest challenges uh, that the gay population has is they're more likely to be single. And if you have erectile dysfunction from prostate cancer treatments and you don't have a partner, it is a real tough conversation to start. And many of them don't know how to start the conversation are afraid to start the conversation. And in fact, uh, there is a very strong sense, and it's a sad sense, that you are dismissed from the, the gay population if you can't have erections. And honestly, it is a sad and difficult problem that I don't have a solution for, but we recognize it. Thank you so much, Victoria and Richard. I've been enlightened. If you had to break it down into the fast five facts that our listeners can take away from our chat, Victoria, what would they be? Thank you, Jason and Richard. This has been wonderful. And I'm sure we could talk all day about this and create a whole other podcast series called The Great Sexpectations. But for now, here is what I've taken away. Firstly, make it clear that everyone experiences different sexual side effects, and these can change over time during the course of treatment. Then give them everything that could happen so they are prepared. Secondly, define erectile dysfunction and also loss of libido, explaining what that can look and can feel like. Thirdly, have the pun involved throughout, especially when it comes to what sexual aid they want to try. Fourth, ask both the patient and partner separately how their sex life is going and listen for that congruence. Incongruent answers might indicate referral to a counsellor would be helpful. And finally, you do not need all the answers when it comes to the details of sexual side effects and strategies. And you don't need much time either. So remember that plicit model and work through the letters. Simply bringing it up is the first P, permission. Then specific suggestions, limited information, then refer to therapy if necessary. So that's it for today, folks. We hope you've enjoyed listening and thank you very much to Victoria. And remember, you can find her at her website, www.attouchysubject.com. We also hope that you've learned something new and you will join us again next time. Take care. Remember to send all feedback to feedback at talkingurology.com.au. You can subscribe through Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the website at talkingurology.com.au. You can also follow us on Twitter at Talking Urology to get all the latest news and notifications of past and upcoming podcasts. You've been listening to Joseph Iskia, Victoria Cullen and our special guest Richard Wasasag, written by Victoria Cullen and Joseph Iskia, produced by Joseph Iskia and Cara Webb. And a special thanks to our sponsor of this episode, Abvi. 
Zoya Gurner, the practical urology podcast for those who love urology. This podcast is sponsored by Avi Proprietary Limited, which has no control over audio content. The content is entirely independent and based on published studies and experts' opinion. The views within the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Avi Proprietary Limited.